Welcome to Coastal Conversations. I'm Jerry Schubel with the Aquarium of the Pacific in Long Beach, California. In our last program, we explored the problem of sea level rise and coastal flooding. It's a condition that nearly all of the nation's coastal ocean areas face to varying degrees and all coasts around the world. Sea level is rising and storms superimposed upon the higher sea are causing more damage. It's a topic we will return to in future conversations. But today, we're focusing on the Great Lakes. And the problem there is not that lake levels are rising, but that they are falling and may continue to fall as a result of climate change. But today, we're focusing on the Great Lakes. And the problem there is not that lake levels are rising, but that they are falling and may continue to fall as a result of climate change. The Great Lakes are the largest group of freshwater lakes on Earth. They contain more than 20% of all the Earth's liquid freshwater, sometimes referred to as the North Coast or the Third Coast by residents of the U.S. The Great Lakes began to form at the end of the last glacial period around 10,000 years ago, as retreating ice sheets carved basins into the land and they became filled with meltwater. The lakes contain 95% of the surface freshwater of North America. They supply drinking water to more than 40 million people and are an enormous recreational and tourism resource. They also support shipping, provide cooling water for power plants, and are of enormous value. There are five Great Lakes, Michigan, Huron, Superior, Ontario, and Erie. Only Lake Michigan lies entirely within the U.S. We share the rest with Canada. There are many issues that we could discuss that would be of interest, including invasive species and over-enrichment with nutrients, and we will deal with those issues in future programs. But today, we're concentrating on lake levels. I grew up in Michigan at the tip of the thumb on Lake Huron and still go back every summer. Growing up, we saw lakes the rise and fall every few years, and we came to expect it. This year when we were there, lake level was quite low, and according to some experts, the prognosis for the future is that lake levels will continue to fall. Lake Michigan and Lake Huron hit all-time record low levels in 2013. Falling lake levels has many implications, economic and environmental. I have with me today the Executive Vice President of the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago, Roger German, and Dr. Drew Gronewald from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Great Lakes Environmental Research Lab, GLURAL, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Together we will explore this topic. Roger is in his office in Chicago, and Drew is in his office in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Welcome to both of you to Coastal Conversations. Roger. I want to start with you. I'm sure that all of our viewers know about the Shedd Aquarium, but take just a minute or two to tell us about the scope of your public programs, and particularly those that deal with the Great Lakes. Sure, and it's great to be here, Jerry. So one of the things that we prided ourselves with here at the Shedd Aquarium is being the world's aquarium and having one of the most diverse aquatic collections uh, of any aquarium in the world. Uh, but what's unique is we are situated right here in Chicago on the shores of Lake Michigan, and we've undertaken probably our greatest conservation effort, which is kind of bringing around awareness and protection and preservation of these uh, Great Lakes and 
uh, these kind of one-time gifts from from Mother Nature. So uh, the Shadowcorum's Great Lakes program is, is, is infancy but very robust. We're focusing in three particular areas. One of those areas is science. So we've got some uh, PhDs and postdocs and researchers on our staff. We also work very closely with folks like Drew and his team and universities around the uh, uh, the Great Lakes Basin to provide science um, and, and data that's critical to understanding what's happening with the Great Lakes. Another thing that we're doing um, is that we have a, an awareness campaign and an education campaign. So we're doing things like creating an exhibit that focuses on Great Lakes that the two million people who come through our doors every year can learn about Great Lakes. And it's not just about um, silver and brown fish. We actually have a sturgeon touch uh, exhibit here, which is kind of unique to that's such an iconic fish. We've got education programs where even uh, students who uh, live a mile away from Lake Michigan who've never even seen the lake can go up to the Apostle Islands and learn about the, the Great Lake. And then the third thing that we, we do and pride ourselves on is because of our trusted brand and voice and something that aquariums like yours and ours you know, bring to the table is how do we bring folks together for a unified voice and to solve uh, issues? So oftentimes we'll convene meetings with you know, government leaders and industry leaders and environmental leaders and take on a topic like lake levels or other other issues and see if we can come to consensus to, you know, make sure that uh, we're, we're doing our part to protect and preserve. Again, Roger, is, is changing lake levels one of the issues you bring to your visitors? And if you do, please tell us what you're telling them about lake levels. Sure, absolutely. You know, again, we're situated right here on Lake Michigan. So if you come for a visit here at the aquarium, it's no, you're no stranger over the last few years to see, you know, kind of the lake levels in flux. You can see rocks in the summer uh, when lake levels are down. You know, ice caps aren't uh, as prevalent in the winter. So oftentimes we'll get guests to walk in and we'll ask us questions about the, you know, the lake level. So we try to interpret the, what we can from science and talking to other organizations and hearing what, the, what, what they're conveying. Uh, we have our, our social media channels that we're constantly talking to the 42 million people around the Great Lakes Basin and why they should care. Um, and again, you know, there's lots of issues that are being focused on on the Great Lakes, but lake levels is one thing that, uh, you know, we're, we're looking at seriously and trying to make sure uh, everyone's aware of what's happening. Thank you, Roger. I'd now like to turn to Drew Gronerwald. Drew, you're one of the leading experts on the Great Lakes and on fluctuations in lake levels. Tell us about historical changes in lake levels and how far back our records go and what drives these fluctuations. Sure, Jerry. Um, first of all, thanks for the opportunity to be here. Uh, appreciate it. And, and before I answer the, the question about the historical record, I want to just tip on two points to provide a little bit of context for that particular part of our discussion. The first of which is that when it comes to regional experts and information about water levels, we're very fortunate that we leverage a strong binational partnership with colleagues in Canada and other colleagues at state, local, federal uh, levels all around the Great Lakes Basin. It's important to recognize that any story about water levels in the region leverages this strong partnership. Um, the second point I want to underscore is one you made very early about the magnitude of the lakes. Um, but when we look beyond just the, the North American continent, um, there are a couple different uh, points to make, one of which is that the Great Lakes coastline is uh, massive. Not only is the U.S. coastline of the Great Lakes one of the largest relative to the Atlantic and the Pacific coasts, but then when you look at an international scale, the U.S. and the Canadian coastlines of the Great Lakes represent about 10,000 miles of coastline. Uh, that's far greater than just the Atlantic U.S. coastline or the Gulf or the Pacific U.S. coastline, even greater than the Alaskan coastline. 
So it's an important point when we talk about coastlines and how the Great Lakes fit into that discussion. The second point about magnitude uh, has to do with the volume uh, and the surface area of the lake. We talked earlier about the surface area and volume. One point I like to make about the, the Great Lakes is that the Great Lakes, along with Lake Tandanika and Lake Baikal, those three systems together constitute about half of all of the Earth's unfrozen surface fresh water. And I think that places a really important context for the discussion we're having today about Great Lakes water levels. Now, getting to your question about the historical record, we are very fortunate here in the Great Lakes to have a record of water levels on all of the lake systems that goes back for about 150 years, back to the mid-1800s. And that water level, water level record indicates a high degree of variability. Uh, for example, water levels hit a record low in the mid-1960s, and then they proceeded to climb several feet, about five or six feet, till they hit an all-time high in 1986. Now we're back again to a all-time record low. And those values I was giving relate to Lake Michigan and Lake Huron, but there are similar uh, ranges of variability as well on the other lakes. And it's important to put those changes in the context of some of the marine coastal systems that we often study. For example, uh, in New York City, the Battery Park gauge is often held up as a sentinel of climate change and sea level rise. But it's worth noting that that gauge has shown a water level rise of about 10 inches over the past century, which really isn't of the same range of variability of what we experience here on the Great Lakes. And all of that sets the stage for where we are right now, where water levels have just hit some, some record low numbers. So, Drew, while the, these records are long, 150 years or so, it's only one or two percent of the history of the Great Lakes, but they're very important in interpreting what's happening. And as you know, it becomes increasingly difficult to get funding for long-term monitoring data sets. I wonder if, if you would say a, just a word about the value of these long-term data sets. Oh, it's absolutely tremendous to have. We, we tend to look at the, the water levels of the Great Lakes as one of Earth's longest continuous direct measurements of, of a large-scale hydrologic system. Um, and if, if we want to understand some of the changes that are going on, even on a global scale, with regard to changes in, in climate, how those climate changes propagated the changes in water surface temperature and ice cover, we have a great example of, of one of those systems here in the Great Lakes. And one of the reasons that we have that great example is because we have long-term observations that sustain our understanding. Of the I think lake, lake levels on the Great Lakes, tide records uh, in our uh, rivers and, and estuaries, river flows, all of these long-term data sets are really important and we have to figure out some way to continue to fund them. So Drew, lake levels have fluctuated Absolutely. significantly in the historic past. Is there any periodicity to these fluctuations? That's, that's a really good question, Jerry, and one that we're often asked. The, the best way to answer the question is to point out the fact that um, for most of the period of record we have, water levels are driven by long-term changes in precipitation, both over the lakes and also over the landscape. And we've seen that trend uh, over time, over the past 100, 150 years. And we don't really see a strong either, you know, decadal or, or multi-annual trend in a lot of those precipitation and corresponding water level patterns. One thing that is of interest that we've observed recently, though, is 
that the changes in precipitation over the past, um, over the most of the period of record, were up until recently much greater than the changes in evaporation. But in the late 1990s, there were a series of changes that resulted in much higher evaporation rates. And that sudden change in evaporation rates led largely to not only a drop in water levels, but in fact, a sustained period of low water levels that is almost unprecedented in the historical so, record. I guess when we were growing up and we thought there was some periodicity to this, and we used to say every seven years we were going to have very low water, we, we were wrong, I guess. Well, it, uh, we've had a hard time teasing out exact numbers like that over the period of record. So I don't want to say you're wrong, but um, we, the, the evidence we have points to... Um, it's hard to tease out those types okay, of Okay, and so evaporation has increased, and um, the, it's the balance between evaporation and precipitation. What about melting of snow within, within the basin uh, and how that will be affected by climate change, global warming, and will, will that have a big fact, will that be a big factor in uh, lake levels? Absolutely, Jerry. The, the changes in the snow snowpack and snow ablation from the landscape have almost two important factors, one of which actually has to do with abrupt changes, not just in the long-term water levels, but in the seasonal water level cycle. Uh, so over the course of the year within each of the lake systems, we expect water levels to hit a, a seasonal low somewhere in the wintertime, and then to begin rising again in the springtime and hit a peak right around um, June, July, or August. And one thing we've observed, particularly on Lake Erie recently, was a shift in those seasonal water level dynamics, in large part due to the fact that more precipitation in the wintertime is coming down as rain rather than snow, and there's overall less snowpack, and as a result, water levels are rising much higher in the season. Now, with regard to annual long-term water levels, there's a little more research we need to do on how on what happens with the total overall water budget when there's more precipitation falling in rain rather than snow and there's less snow on the landscape. That's an area that we need to Is there anything else you would like to say about the driving forces behind sea level, lake level, sorry, whether rising or falling other than precipitation, evaporation, and the form of that precipitation? Right. The, we've hit on the big major drivers, but it is worth pointing out that when we, when we talk about the full suite of drivers of Great Lakes water levels, the conversation certainly begins with precipitation, evaporation, and runoff. Those are the three big drivers. But some of the other more subtle factors as well include the phenomenon of um, isostatic rebound. That is um, the, the actual movement of the Earth's crust in response to the loss of pressure from the last ice age. That's actually a factor that's causing the land surface elevation to change around the Great Lakes. And it contributes to a, to a not insignificant change in, in perceived water levels. And of course, there are changes in the channels that connect the lakes as well, some natural and some man-made from dredging and other operations that can affect water levels to a much lesser extent than the changes in precipitation. So what's the prognosis that these low lake levels will, will persist because of climate change? Jerry, that's a great question. It's a very difficult one to answer because in order to answer it, we really have to understand the prognosis, not specifically for lake levels, but the prognosis for first, how precipitation patterns over the Great Lakes Basin are gonna play out over the next several years and decades, 
but then even more importantly, how the interactions between surface water temperature, evaporation off the lake surfaces, the formation of ice, and that complicated feedback mechanism is going to play out. And that's a very complicated one to understand um, on any system, let alone the one uh, that we have here, which is the largest lake system on the planet. So it's a very complicated answer uh, question, and we don't have a great answer right now. I want to come back now, then, Roger, though. What are the implications? Because policymakers, managers have to deal with this. You had the record uh, low lake level in, in Lake Michigan. There are implications, economic, environmental, uh, relative to dredging, and all kinds of things. Talk, talk to us a little bit about some of these implications. Sure, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that makes the Great Lakes so unique in this region so unique is because, you know, as we've been talking about today, having this access to quality water, to, you know, a quantity of water, and you see some major, you know, um, uh, infrastructure and amazing cities all around the Great Lakes, and we're all connected. But it does have an effect on everything is all connected. And it does have an effect on our quality of life. It has an effect on um, the environment, on, on the economics. Um, you know, as you think about, you know, lower lake levels, what does that mean from, uh, you know, shipping industry standpoint and, and those who, who rely on it? When you think of, you know, some of the some of the money that goes into from the economic standpoint, when you just look at tourism, many of these cities have built uh, river, you know, waterfronts, lakefronts um, that uh, that rely on uh, the the water to be a main attractor. Um, when we think of businesses that are being attracted, you know, one of the things. When you look at the uh, businesses around the country who are, you know, looking states that are looking at, you know, how can we get our hands on some of the Great Lakes water because they have water issues and they have businesses located there, and you know, you kind of see a little bit of uh, what I'll call kind of a turf war, and you know, in the commerce side of, you know, come back to the Great Lakes state because we've got the water, and you know, you can run your business here, and, and vice versa. So th there's a, there's a lot riding on, you know, what happens with the Great Lakes and, and quality of life from again drinking water from our environment from the animals that rely on them. I mean, there's so much of uh, migratory, uh, you know, animals and waterfowl that, that, that rely on, on these, you know, amazing bodies of water that, um, you know, I think the 42 million people who live around the Great Lakes, you know, it's incumbent upon us to pay attention to what's happening, try to do everything that we can to preserve and protect. And, you know, while Drew said there's these historic highs and lows, you know, back and forth, it's easy to say, oh, they're, they're in good shape. We're just going through a normal high or low. You know, others who will say we better do something more and you know on the other end of the spectrum but reality of it is is that you know we, we've got to do something we've got to pay attention to what's happening here in places like you know the chat aquarium and you know, your aquarium out there in california you know do our best to make sure that we're educating the public about how we're connected how we all rely on each other and what can we do to uh, you know again in this case protect and preserve I, the great Lakes. i recall that the the number of recreational boats that are registered on, in the Great Lakes states is greater than in all of the, the states along the ocean coasts of the United States. And it, th there are real challenges sometimes of getting these boats out to, into the water. This summer we saw in Lake Huron that some of these boats were 20, 30, 40 feet from the water. The docks were high and dry. The, the kinds of uh, cages there that, uh, that hold these boats up over the water that has to, to take have an impact on the economy of the region, I would think. Either of you want to comment on that? Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll say that it definitely does. I sit on the US EPA Great Lakes Advisory Board, and we're developing the, the next action plan for the president and EPA and Congress to deal with the, the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. And one of the things that we talk about in developing this plan is what are those um, environmental impacts and how do we mitigate those? 
but also what are the economic impacts that, um, you know, that should be addressed when we're dealing with, you know, Great Lakes restoration and preservation because, uh, you know, again, a healthy environment is about how we work collectively together with, you know, the, the ecosystem, you know, animals, humans, as well as the economy. And you, know, you can't spite one, you know, for the other. And, and uh, uh, with limited resources out there and dollars out there to, you know, to further quality of life, it's, you know, you're trying to find the, you know, the right balance. But, um, but the good news is that I, I, you know, we've seen over the last few years a very strong bipartisan effort to address issues from the economy to the environment. Um, water quality and everything in between and folks like Drew and his team are you know are really uh, you know out there talking about these things but you know making sure that uh, again the community is well versed in, in, in the information so we can make important decisions that you know affect all of our lives and or affect our future generations. Is shipping one of the areas that could benefit from climate change? We know that in the Great Lakes that uh, the, the, the shipping closes down in the fall and doesn't open up until the spring uh, because of the ice and because of storms but the amount of of ice on the Great Lakes is going down. On the other hand, it's also a function of lake levels. Um, so is it a, is it a, a blessing or, or because ships would have to sail light, that is without a, a full load and getting into docks might be a challenge. What, what do you think? Is it a positive or a negative in terms of uh, shipping? Who, who wants to answer that? I think that one. I'll, I'll sure I can take a, a stab at that one, Jerry. That's a, that's a great question. It's one that um, we've we've raised here periodically, and and have asked around to some of our constituents. I think one of the key aspects to um, making that decision at this point in time has to know with what uh, know with some confidence what ice is going to be for the upcoming season. Um, I'm I'm not convinced. I'm also not an expert on shipping, but I'm not convinced that. Um, these are decisions that can be made necessarily on the fly about how to plan out a, a season worth of shipping. So I don't know if it's, a, it's an important question or rather a, a, a high priority question for the short term in terms of changing the shipping season. But again, I'm not an expert on that. Uh, an expert on that. It certainly isn't. And question. I think that uh, one of the things to point out is that NOAA is the organization we all rely upon for many of these data sets in making these kinds of decisions and, and forecasts. It's all about change. The Greek philosopher Heraclitus, uh, who lived from about 535 BC to 475 BC, once said, the only constant is change. Nature has always changed, but humans have increased the pace of change. And change has different components. There's the relatively slow, persistent change whose driving forces or driving forcing functions have large inertia things like global climate change. Then there are the transient changes or the anomalous events, uh, changes that are more rapid but transitory. Their impacts, they're both environmental and societal, including economic, may persist for some time after the forcing function is removed. A tornado, a hurricane, an El Nino, or the great storm of 1913 on the Great Lakes would be examples of these transient phenomena. The Great Lakes storm of 1913, which historically was referred to as the Big Blow, the Freshwater Fury, or the White Hurricane, was a blizzard with hurricane force winds that devastated the Great Lakes Basin from November the 7th through November the 10th of 1913. It was the deadliest and most destructive natural disaster ever to hit the Great Lakes. It killed more than 250 people, destroyed 19 ships, and stranded 19 others. The slow incremental changes, 
are easier to adapt to because they give you more time. But because they're changing slowly, they're also easier to ignore than the dramatic events, particularly for elected and appointed officials. Pundits have remarked, never waste a good disaster. And while maybe it doesn't qualify as a disaster, the local lake levels of the summer of 2013 do give us an opportunity to plan and be ready for these slow, persistent changes on, on the Great Lakes. And we have to do that if we are going to be able to build resistant, resilient coastal communities on the Great Lakes and on our ocean shoreline. The institutions like the Shedd Aquarium and the other aquariums in the United States, they attract more than 25 million people every year. Each one of them is embedded within a community. And we, when we talk about creating resilient communities, there surely must be an important role for our institutions to raise awareness and deepen understanding and make our visitors more amenable to the kinds of changes that we're going to have to make in our policies and practices. I wonder, Roger, coming the, from the largest aquarium in the Midwest, if you would like to comment on that. Sure. I think as we talked about change, and, and there's a great quote earlier, and we talked about that slow change that happens in the environment. One of the key factors is you know, that we as humans need to change as well. And as you mentioned, you know, from you know, the Shedd Aquarium to you know, the Aquarium of the Pacific that, that you oversee and all the others in between, you know, I think that's one of our roles is to make sure that you know, we are educating and we are connecting folks to the environment, especially in a much more urban, uh, urban world that we live in and try to instill that change because change will change is going to happen inevitably in, you know in the environment um, and how do we change to adapt but also again to do much is required much is uh, or much is given much is required um, and i think it's incumbent upon us to, to teach this generation and the next generation of you know how we can even make little subtle changes that again protect and preserve the environment that we live in because uh, we only get one shot at it and um, so that inspiration of change, I think, uh, is a really critical role that we all and play. Andrew, you're with the Great Lakes Environmental Research Lab, which is one of the labs of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And this nation depends heavily upon NOAA for a lot of the data that we will have to have to create these resilient coastal communities, whether it's after Superstorm Sandy or in the face of a, of a slowly rising sea or in the case of the Great Lakes, lake levels that are, are falling. I wonder if you would talk just a little bit about how NOAA collects these data, transforms them into information that is not only use, useful to science, but also to people who have to make decisions. Sure, Jerry, that's a great question. Um, a lot of this starts with having a robust and well-sustained monitoring infrastructure for a variety of different variables. In the case of water level gauging stations, uh, NOAA's National Ocean Service uh, co-ops team maintains a, a massive uh, network of gauges on the marine and on the Great Lakes coast, within the Great Lakes, for example. Um, NOAA has 53 water level gauging stations, and that's coupled with um, about, about half that many on the Canadian side of the border that together put together the Great Lakes story. But what we try to do is use data from monitoring systems like that to tell a story and to provide context for management decisions and for understanding about long-term changes. So, for example, here in the Great Lakes region, uh, when people ask about the low water level conditions right now, we can take a look at the current conditions and provide some context uh, that I think really do help guide management decisions 
for example, the, the low water levels that came about last year are largely a consequence of two different aspects of the system. One is that they were already low following the late 1990s, but there's also a drought, and it's important for people to look at the data and understand those drivers. Uh, as they look back in the record, they can see how water levels in Great Lakes have changed over time. Those are the types of stories that I think NOAA is trying to tell across a broad range of different aquatic ecosystems. Th thank you very much. And I think Roger and I would agree that we believe the network of the nation's aquariums can be a very effective outreach uh, network for delivering these stories to the general public because uh, we're, we are wholesalers and we get to an awful lot of people. And resilient coastal communities will be a recurrent theme throughout these coastal conversations. I want to th thank Drew Grunewald and Roger German for joining me on this edition of Coastal Conversations. I also want to thank the Roddenberry Foundation for making Coastal Conversations possible. I hope you will join us next month when we explore the topic of over-enrichment of coastal waters and the creation of dead zones. I'll be joined by Tom Schmid, President of the Texas State Aquarium, and by Saul Paul Sandifer, Chief Science Advisor for NOAA's National Ocean Service. I'm Jerry Schubel for Coastal Conversations. <laughs>